Well, the first thing I think he would do would be to stand up and tell the truth. I mean, he had a great expression that was uh, just tell the truth and watch them scatter. So the further away the problem is, uh, the easier it is to postpone action on And that's essentially what we're doing. Be real. Because people in New Hampshire are really cool. I'd say get in the game. This is a problem facing your generation. You have to have a voice in the decision. Welcome to Facing the Future, brought to you by the Concord Coalition on WKXL, New Hampshire's talk radio station. I'm your host, Bob Bixby. Each week, we take a nonpartisan dive into topics related to the federal budget, the economy, and how they affect our nation's future. This week, we'll start with a look at the potential budgetary and economic effects of climate change. My guest for this segment is Brian Keene, president of Smart Power, a nonprofit organization focused on renewable energy, energy efficiency outreach, and marketing. Keen was one of the original field directors of the Concord Coalition and was a key staff member of the Paul Songus presidential campaign. And we're going to connect all of that because <laughs> they're all connected. Uh, and after that, we'll, uh, we'll turn our attention back to Washington. Uh, where the economic climate is uh, rapidly changing to focus on rising inflation. And for that segment, Concord Coalition Policy Director Tory Gorman and Chief Economist Steve Robinson uh, will join me to discuss that. But first up this week is climate change. And uh, my guest and former colleague, Brian Keene, uh, Brian has been uh, with Smart Power. It was, he was the founding president since uh, 2002. Uh, author of the book, Green is Good, Save Money, Make Money, and Help Your Community. Uh, Brian can maybe tell us a little bit about that and wh whether he's planning a, uh, uh, an, an update for that uh, book. And, uh, you know, uh, Brian had some Capitol Hill experience before uh, coming to Concord and then uh, going over to the um, environmental side of things from the fiscal side. Um, he's a 1989 graduate of American University. I, too, am a graduate of American University. How about that? See that? <laughs> Some years earlier. <laughs> <laughs> so anyway, Brian, welcome back to Facing the Future. Hey, it's great to be here. Thanks, Bob. I'm really good to be with you. Uh, you know, when you were you were on the show in February and at that point, the, the, the idea was to sort of wax poetic about the Songus campaign 30 years after the primary victory in New Hampshire and uh, the early days of the Concord Coalition. So we didn't have enough time to discuss your current activities uh, with smart power and uh, and the connection between energy efficiency, a clean environment and the federal budget. So I wanted to have you back on the show because the whole issue of climate change uh, is a is a looming challenge, not just for the budget, but for the economy as a whole. And I'm finding um, increasingly, as you know, we as a former field director, we do field events at Concord all over the country. And it's it's really striking to me how much uh, this issue, climate change, resonates with young people. And so when you talk about fiscal responsibility, they want to know, well, what how do, how does how does the economy factor into that? I mean, can we can we spend more on environmental things and still be fiscally responsible? So you're the right guy to ask that question. Uh, you right. you you start out as a as a fiscal hawk with Concord. Uh, uh, now you're operating in the environmental sustainability field. So, sort of generally, what uh, do you see? Yeah. Some connections between the two? I do. I see a lot of connections. I mean, it's and it's it's striking to me um, that. You know, quite frankly, 
from our conversation before about uh, Senator Paul Songus, you know, his two kind of big priorities, uh, even when he was in the Senate, were uh, fiscal responsibility and the environment. Um, so it's really, you know, clearly they're t- the two are linked. Um, what I think is really fascinating is uh, there's consistently kind of a discussion and uh, about how much should the federal government be spending on quote unquote environmental issues. Um, as, and then as opposed to, or not as opposed, but at the same time, uh, what each one of us can do to actually be part of that environmental solution or what is now increasingly, you know, what is climate change. Um, and at the end of the day, it comes down to priorities. I mean, on a federal government side, it really comes down to what is the priority that the administration, whichever administration is in power, will be uh, pushing or, um, or the members of Congress or the senators themselves. And what I think we're really seeing is kind of a, first and foremost, it's an, it's an understanding that climate change is real. So it's not just kind of, uh, you know, when we were kids, Bob, it was the environmental movement and it was everything from saving the whales to recycling to uh, solar power. And really now it's all funneled into climate change that we understand that today the biggest challenge facing the planet is actually the change in climate, the change in temperatures. And what can we as a government, what can we as individuals do to actually mitigate that? And that's really kind of where it comes down. So that's, that I think is kind of really fascinating that we're already, that the government itself is actually having that conversation we're there. And then I think we get into kind of the specifics of, well, how, you know, is there going to be a a you know, multi-billion dollar bill, a trillion dollar bill on climate, how are we going to do this? And that really then becomes all the priorities of a specific administration and ultimately the government and, and, the, and I should say the kind of the voters at the time. Um, and I think we're really seeing that there is a huge movement um, from really voters uh, to do something about climate. Um, and it goes right, if I can just give me two more seconds, it goes right back to kind of that same angst that we had when we started the Concord Coalition, which was, how do you actually get people to personally do something about the federal budget deficit when it's such a huge challenge? And that's the same thing with climate change. How do you actually get individuals to actually personally do something, take a vested interest in the environment, in climate change, when it's such a huge issue? And that's really kind of what Corporate Smart Power does, very similar to what the work we did with our Concord Coalition. Yeah, I, I noticed that. I, I, I want to get into that because I think it's an interesting uh, approach that you take. And, uh, you know, one of the changes that I've noticed, uh, not just from the attitudes of, uh, of the people that we talk to, uh, particularly the younger people, but you kind of alluded to this. There are now an increasing number of official reports, government reports things making their way into the, um, you know, sort of the official documents that we look at from from a fiscal point of view. For example, OMB, the Office of Management and Budget, has a separate section on the effects of climate change and making some projections about what might happen to the budget, not not to the environment necessarily, but, you know, how the environmental projections, if not changed, would have an effect on the economy and the budget, if not changed. And the Congressional Budget Office has similar projections, the OECD, IMF. I mean, every, everybody's doing climate projections now with an eye, not just on the effect on the climate, you know, but also the economic and budgetary effects, uh, you know, which are 
pretty profound. And they are they are uncertain. But, you know, I get into this, the, the similarity between addressing the two things uh, that, that you raised. Um, you know, a lot of the, the short term things involve short term pain and you're trying to get long term gain. Exactly. And uh, that's that's a problem that we've always had. So you, you kind of took up that mantle with um, smart power and. How what what's been your strategy in trying to encourage people to be uh, um, you know just to switch to environmentally clean, sure efficient. Well, you uh, know, and and actually to touch on your first point too, which is it's it's really true. Climate change can, does directly impact our federal budget, and it impacts our ability to collect taxes, and impacts our ability as a society to actually do things. To put it really specific. Um, climate change actually creates kind of, uh, we're, we're already seeing it, you know, bigger storms, um, bigger challenges environmentally. So we have, you know, more hurricanes, we have worse hurricanes, we have more flooding, we have uh, more snowstorms when we're not supposed to have snowstorms, right? So it's going it, to, I think it's snowing in Rochester, New York today. Um, so and here it is April, April 9th, April 8th, 19th? 18th, um, 19th, 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 I guess. But, but the real point being, that all directly impacts as basic as tax collections, right? So by the way, every time a flight is canceled, that has an economic impact on society, on our government. Every time a community is flooded, huge impact. And so those financial impacts are very real. And then, so if you just take it really just to your own community, you can actually start seeing it. Hey, yeah, we got, you know, 200 year old floods in you know the past 10 years that's kind of crazy um and then also we have the ability of communities themselves to actually start using clean renewable energies um and, but what that requires is investments from these communities um in actually changing their type of energy um so there's huge economic impacts on all of this um and that and it comes down to priorities but the other point that you know which really kind of it, plays out from Concord Coalition is that we understood and, and you understand inherently, Bob, that at Concord Coalition, people will take a, uh, a an interest, they'll actually understand the, the federal budget deficit if it can be turned into their very specific lives. So, you know, it's as basic as, you know, you wouldn't be running up your credit cards and the bank just wouldn't let you just kind of always uh, have a maxed out credit card. Uh, but somehow we can do that on the federal budget level. And that understanding on a very personal level becomes really important also for sustainability, also for climate change. Um, and that's really kind of where we focus. The, the other thing that's really fascinating, and, you're, and you've seen this too, is that people are, we know for a fact that people are more likely to take a sustainability action, whether an environmental uh, energy efficiency act or buy renewable energy or get an electric vehicle, they are more likely to do that if their next door neighbor has done it. They're more likely to do it. In fact, you know, 64% more likely to do it if someone in their very close social circle, whether it's from work or school or somebody that they actually really know. So not like a Facebook friend, but somebody that you actually really know is taking a, a sustainability action. You're more likely to do that. And that's exactly kind of where it's playing out from Concord Coalition, that we would get communities of people to actually understand and work together to actually figure out, if you will, their own federal budget, uh, their own federal budgets. And that then gave them the understanding that, oh, 
my neighbor is wrestling with the same issues I'm wrestling with. My neighbor actually thinks this is a really big priority. And that really mattered. And it really matters to members of Congress when they know that, oh, people in their own districts are actually dealing with and taking actions on these two main issues. I guess I should go to Washington and take a similar action. You know, I uh, to, to again, go back to the uh, the reports, I think uh, the, the, the number that uh, I saw in the OMB report was that it was already costing something like one hundred and twenty five billion a year yeah. to respond to weather. That's just just weather challenges that come in the United States uh, annually, hurricanes, floods, storms of other kinds, wildfires. Uh, and that could go up. The longer term projections on the economy, which is, uh, uh, you know, kind of the more important thing, because it's a systemic, you know, we always talk about the aging of the population and things that, you know, rising healthcare costs and things that that are affecting the budget right now. But I mean, if you talk about a long term sustainability uh, of all of the reports that I've looked at, yeah. There's wide uncertainty. Then they acknowledge there's wide uncertainty because this is new. This yeah. is not something that we've had to deal with before. Uh, and but none of them say it's going to be a good thing. <laughs> it's, 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 it's kind of a range of how bad yeah. uh, climate change could be. Anything from reducing GDP by about one percent over the next 30 years to like 10 percent uh, right. by the end of the century. And we're just now beginning to focus on this because most of the focus is on what what is the effect on warming? You know, that's that's the number that, that people look at. But policymakers tend to tend to tend to look at that when you got into. Uh, this this business, what was the yeah. what was the light bulb that went off in your head about trying to. Uh, yeah. Use that sort of grassroots approach to getting people to. Switch to solar power, for example. Yep. So it, and it kind of went like this, um, which is going back 20 years ago, that when we started Smart Power was that really we, the polls even then were showing that 80% of the American people wanted to buy solar power. They would raise their hand and say they want to buy it. And back then, solar power for your the average American home, for instance, was over $50,000. Um, so really expensive, really hard to get, um, and nobody else really had it. Um, it was kind of a vestige from really the the seventies. Um, and so, but we're looking at these poll numbers and say, well, wait a minute, 80% of the American people say they want to buy a product that is wicked expensive, that is really hard to get. And by the way, they already have power in their homes. Most, you know, your home and your office already comes with power. So this is just a duplicative effort that they want to spend this money on. So we said, actually, we have to figure out a way to get them solar. If they want to pay $50,000 for it, that's a big piece of the solution, of this climate solution, of the environmental solution. And we also know then that once they own solar, they will then do other things, other sustainability actions. So it really was like, okay, well, then what's the, what's, what, are the, what do we have to do to actually get them to do this? And what we realized, and we worked very closely with Yale University and uh, the School of Environment at Yale University, and then the uh, Stern School of Business at NYU, and it's really in the science of behavior change. What causes people to change their behavior? Um, and you see this at Concord too. What actually is going to, what's the trigger that makes people do something? 
And in sustainability today, the main, the overwhelming trigger is what are my friends and neighbors doing? Hmm. So people want to do what their friends and neighbors are doing. They want to be kind of, if you will, normal. They don't want to be the kind of the eccentric guy in the neighborhood. They want to be like, oh, you know what? My next door neighbor has solar. Maybe I should get solar. It's actually the same science, the same push that actually makes us, you know, mow the lawn because, well, my neighbors mowed his lawn. So I guess I got to mow my lawn. I got to rake the leaves because he just raked his leaves. And it's that type of uh, movement that actually gets people to do something. Very similar today. And it's, you know, then it's compounded, I should say, with the fact that we are marketed to, we as Americans are marketed to constantly. Um, you can't walk down the street without being bombarded with billboards and you know buses and all that stuff. Um, the, as a result, the biggest kind of marketing that uh, push that gets through is a very personal connection. So you are more likely to actually go to a restaurant in your neighborhood if someone in your social circle said, hey, I just went to this great restaurant. You're more likely actually to watch a movie on Netflix if someone says, hey, did you see this cool movie on Netflix? And it so all to say, which is all this science and all this research we've done basically is quite simple, that we like to do what our friends and neighbors are doing. And with the mix of all the marketing we're getting at, those personal connections break through the most. And so at Smart Bar, our job is really to actually connect people who have solar with people who don't have solar. And it works really well. It works unbelievably well that um, they, in fact, become marketers in their truest sense, not salespeople, but marketers. People who own solar love to brag about it. Um, they're very proud of it. And they think it's, they still think it's really cool. And it is cool to have it. So when they're telling their friends and neighbors, like, oh, yeah, I got solar and it's saving me money. And uh, I don't really have to buy into any other part of this whole lifestyle. It's just solar. It's on my house. And um, it's really, it's actually quite affordable. Uh, and it's, and it saves me money. And by the way, in the end of 15 years, the solar panels keep, or keep going and I'm not paying anything for energy at that point. So it becomes this great kind of play. Similarly, by the way, we're seeing in cities and towns and businesses, they're saying, how can we be part of this effort too? And so we work with them. We have what we call our Solarize at Work program, where we know that if the CEO of a company says to his employees, hey, we want to become a sustainable company. And in that regard, we'd love it if, you know, 50% of our employees could own solar and we'll come in and help them figure out how to get solar. And we'll make that company a leader in sustainability. Uh, in cities and towns, the same thing. In cities and towns are really always, they always feel the pinch of the financial pinch, right? So it's always kind of like, yes, they have a very limited amount of money, um, but these, what we call kind of these voluntary programs become a real key piece that when a city or town says, hey, we're gonna be a leader in solar, and by that, we're going to have more of our residents own solar. That becomes a real cool piece for a city or town to brag about. And we help them do that. And the city and town is not buying solar for their residents. They're simply kind of sponsoring this, this our nonprofit to go in and help these, these cities and towns. And then these residents become sustainable. And basically, we work within these communities, cities and towns, and then within those communities, into the organization's um, that most that you say, Bob, are already a member of. So, for instance, if you're a member of a book club, if we can get someone within that book club to talk about their solar to their friends at the book club, 
almost everybody in that book club, they will want to buy Soli because they're like, hey, my book club of 10 people, this guy has it. He actually explained to me how affordable it was, how he was able to get a loan to do it, how great it is on the house. And it really kind of moves that group. And then what we'll do is we actually, as we say, take them by the hand and walk them that last mile from awareness to installation. So we are there with them every step of the way. And, and to the point, you know, we have, yes, solar ribbon cuttings. We have, you know, the guys go up on the roof and put the solar on. That's a big day. And with social media, it becomes a bigger day because you can actually then expand that into, you know, the next door, um, next door or, you know, even a very small Facebook group um, and actually start showing people that, hey, your, your neighbor just got solar. And so isn't that great? You're listening to Facing the Future. I'm your host, Bob Bixby, and I'm discussing the potential economic and budgetary effects of climate change with Brian Keene, president of Smart Power, and one of the Concord Coalition's original field directors. We'll be right back after these short messages. Welcome back to Facing the Future. I'm your host, Bob Bixby. And I'm discussing the potential economic and budgetary effects of climate change with Brian Keene, president of Smart Power and one of the Concord Coalition's original field directors. Uh, so, Brian, we were talking about the benefits uh, to individuals and, uh, and businesses. Uh, I wanted to talk a little bit more about the effect uh, of switching to, to solar of uh, local cities and towns. I mean, sure. I know, I know that you've done a lot of work uh, at, at the government level and be kind of interested in uh, what, what resistance uh, there is um, and what advantages there are for the uh, state and local budgets. Absolutely. So there's, there's, um, and it is, it's where we do a lot of our work is in communities that we go into cities and towns um, and we encourage them from the top down and then also from the bottom up to become sustainable and to become sustainable leaders. Um, and key to that is kind of an understanding that cities and towns are always squeezed financially. Um, so they are looking for the biggest bang for the buck. They are also looking for um, their essential city services that have to be done. And then they want to actually get, if you will, um, and we want them to get good attention for what they're doing. Because when a city or town or a mayor or a city councilors get attention for what they're doing, the town next door will want to do the same thing. And it just starts to snowball like that. So um, the real kind of key is also is to understand, you know, yeah, these, these cities and towns, these mayors have many pressures on them. And we've seen it really, you know, uh, by this past two years that they are working, um, you know, with COVID, basically they're looking at schools are shutting down or had been shutting down. They're, you know, schooling at home, their hospitals are filling up. Um, and it's just an overwhelming concern with COVID. And here, then we are saying, yeah, but how about, how about climate change? How about sustainability? And like, yes, yes, yes. But <laughs> so <laughs> it really becomes, you know, a challenge. But what's really exciting is that we can offer our, our programs that we offer. Basically, we offer the city or town at no cost an avenue for them to become a sustainability leader. And we start first with their grassroots because and we help and we educate and we get them to, if you will, solarize. We get them to become the cities that the residents within our city or town um, are, you know, 40 percent of them, 50 percent of them, 60 percent now have solar. 
And a mayor or a city council can brag about that almost to no end. It becomes a real selling point for the community, for people to move into the community. It becomes a real selling point, by the way, and we know this now for uh, uh, residential homes, that the actual, the, the, um, it's a benefit, financial benefit to have solar on your home. And so that becomes kind of a really, it really helps clean, uh, the clean energy movement really helps build up these cities and towns. And that's really exciting too. So ultimately we go in and we're using and working with kind of the networks of the mayors and city council. We're working with their networks of the city, you know, their email and their, you know, newsletters and that type of stuff, because that gives it the imperature of, of credibility that, you know, nobody knows what, it, who smart car is, but they know their city or town. They know that, oh, you know what, Mayor Jones thinks we should be doing this. And, and she's not crazy. So I think I'm going to be part of this. And it gives that imperature. And part of why that's so important is because, you know, specifically in solar, there's no brand name in solar today. There's no Coke, there's no Pepsi. And so we have to attach our efforts to a credible source. And a city or town becomes very credible. A, a major business becomes very credible. And so when the residents hear that, they're like, oh, this must not be some crazy fly-by-night thing. I think maybe I'll try to be a part of that. And that's really kind of the key. And so it's really, it really is fascinating. We know now that in these communities where we go, we increase solar penetration by a thousand percent using the solarized model, that we actually drop the, the price of solar. Uh, solar today is, is measured really from uh, by, by watt. Um, and we're able to drop, most importantly, we drop the cost of acquisition of solar from 30 cents per watt to 11 cents per watt. Um, and that's a magic, that's an amazing number. And really what we're seeing is that this is not TV, newspaper ends, it's not radio ends. It's peer-to-peer, friend-to-friend, neighbor-to-neighbor. People are talking to each other at the, where they live, work, play, and pray, and saying we should be part of this, in this solarized movement here in this town. Are you finding that um, most of the work is conversions of existing homes or do you, do you work with, um, say, developers and builders in, in installing that as part of new buildings that are going up? So good question. So um, we're hoping to start work with a, a developer in, in Arizona, actually. Um, but predominantly, we're talking about existing uh, housing stock that is getting solar and now solar plus storage. So they're actually getting battery power on that, too. And it's really kind of cool because and what kind of the demographics are just interesting. The people buying solar today are, you know, empty nesters over 55 who uh, the number one reason they're buying solar is because, quote, I've always wanted solar. Uh, hmm. That they have always thought they could do this. They've always wanted to do this. But there's always been kind of this sense like, oh, it's not ready yet or wait for the next one or it's going to be even more efficient, you know, in five years. And they're basically saying, I've waited long enough. My neighbor has it. Why don't I have it? And that's really kind of, it's so cool to see it happen. You know, um, here's where I'm going to test the, uh, the slight difference in our ages. I do remember, Brian, the first Earth Day. I don't know whether you do. But... No, I don't actually, but I, I, uh, wow. I do. I have a specific recollection, but, but you're, because you referred to, you know, when we were growing up, it was, um, it, it was a, it, just kind of like the environment or something. Exactly. And it was mostly about air pollution. I mean, in those days, it was mostly about air pollution, some about water pollution. 
like the Hudson River was uh, just such a mess. But I do remember the very first uh, Earth Day. And, and one of the reasons I wanted to have you on this week is that uh, this is this is the week of Earth Day, exactly. which we uh, continue to celebrate or celebrate maybe the right word for it. I mean, observe because it's stuff that we're supposed to be doing. How do you see the um, the future of this movement uh, going? What are there any? Um, I mean, obviously, there's more interest in it and uh, and a take action kind of interest in it. Are there any cutting edge technologies out there that the federal government could be doing more uh, to invest in, obviously, in a fiscally responsible way? Yeah, and absolutely. Um, and, and, and they're already doing it, which is really kind of cool. So what what we realize now is that, you know, that first Earth Day in my whole childhood, this concept of electric vehicles was like, it seemed like a fantasy. It was like, that's never going to happen. Um, and now they're here uh, and they're real and they're working. Like they're, it's not even, I mean, a challenge. It's, it's like, you see a Tesla, it doesn't even register anymore. Cause it's like, Oh, but that's an hundred percent electric car and it just works. But where the government really needs to, and can be part of this, this climate solution is in helping to ensure that the batteries for these cars, that the technology that makes these batteries uh, is better technology and that the that it actually, the materials to build these batteries, we don't wind up relying on, if, if I can be so bold, on another foreign, poly, foreign country that has, say, our oil, right? So we want to make sure that we don't, if you will, create another, you know, Saudi Arabia so that, oh, what are we, where are we going to get our oil from? Batteries are the new, uh, the new oil. And that's going to be really important. So we're already seeing the federal government today, Department of Energy today, is making loans to companies to help them create better batteries and to help them create better batteries with materials that are abundant here in the U.S. Um, and that's where I think it's really exciting. And we're talking about, you know, at the um, U.S. Department of Energy, they have the, the loan program office, the LPO, and they just made a billion dollar loan to a company uh, to help create better batteries. But it's not free money. And I think that's a key piece. It's a loan. Now, yes, it's, it can be a risk because this is still new technologies we're talking about. But the loan will be paid back to the taxpayers and then some because it's, this company is going to work. That, that's, that's the assumption. And that's you know, you're reminding me of uh, the, the Songus campaign in that, uh, you know, I, he used to talk when he was talking about the economy. Um, he really emphasized uh, manufacturing, manufacturing, manufacturing. He'd say it over and over again. Was concerned about hollowing out of our manufacturing base because the effect of jobs, the effect of it's not just jobs. It's just losing control. I mean, we're seeing what happens now in, in the, the Russia-Ukraine situation and to a certain extent, the pandemic, the whole post-Cold War business model that we had thought of uh, is now, you know, we're seeing the downsides of it. Let me put it that way. And uh, expanding the manufacturing base in a new technology that, that is not pie in the sky, as you say, anymore. People aren't thinking about electric cars as I would have thought of in the seventies or eighties. It's just like an absurd thing to even think about. (laughs) Exactly. Um, And, uh, and frankly, I think people thought of solar power in those days too, the the same way. It's just, you know, I don't know, but, um, but now it's um, taken seriously. So this investment in, in the in the the batteries, I I I think is kind of consistent with that idea of um, 
re re-engineer, you know, um, uh, reinvigorating the uh, the manufacturing sector. That's right. It is, and and actually, part of it that part of it also is, you know, um, there is there are companies worldwide that are working on these issues, and the U.S. government is saying, hey, if you want to. Um, if, if you need, you know, if you want to come in, if you want uh, us to lend you some money, you have to establish here in the United States. Um, and so we are really seeing that truck manufacturers, electric truck manufacturers looking at specific states and where they're going to go to do their manufacturing in the U.S. Um, and, it, and it's it's straight from the Paul Sanders handbook. I mean, it is. It's exactly that. It's like, yes, let's leverage the financial ability of the federal government to make these investments into more jobs, more clean technologies, more ability for the United States to actually do all of these things for ourselves and for others. And it really does, it's really pretty cool to see it. Um, so, you know, you're, at the, in the 90s, we thought the manufacturing base was just gone. And now we'll see it's coming back and a huge part of that is the clean technology manufacturing base. This has been terrific. That's uh, all the time we have for Brian. We're going to be right back after these short messages when I will pick it up with Tori Gorman and uh, Steve Robinson, and we'll be talking about inflation and whether we're going to have another recession. More good news. (laughs) (laughs) We'll be right back after these short messages. Welcome back to Facing the Future. I'm your host, Bob Bixby. And for this segment, I'm joined by Concord Coalition Policy Director Tori Gorman and Chief Economist Steve Robinson. Well, uh, the political climate in Washington is uh, changing as all eyes turn to the inflation outlook and the Fed's reaction and whether a so-called soft landing can be engineered, uh, that is, slowing inflation without throwing the economy into a recession. What do you think? I mean, uh, Larry Summers, the former Treasury Secretary, has been saying that he thinks that there will be a recession sometime over the next two years. Um, Is he wrong? If I knew the answer to this, I'd be putting my money all over Wall Street and gambling in in (laughs) Vegas. Um, I I think that if you look at historical precedent, the uh, odds are not in the Federal Reserve's favor. Um, but I think there are a lot of things that are different now uh, than in the past. Um, I think uh, central, not only our central bank, but central banks around the globe are more attuned to inflation than they were, for example, in the 1970s. Um, we've got a lot more uh, tools uh, at, at our disposal. Um, so I, I, I think time will tell, uh, but you know, the statistics are not uh, in the Federal Reserve's favor, I think if you were a betting person, you'd bet on some sort of slowdown. Um, but yeah, you know, I who, mean, who knows? <laughs> well, I, I, you know, it's one of those uh, interesting things where the economy is is mm-hmm. hot, and so you think, well, gee, that's a good thing, uh, uh, but it's too hot, and it causes too much inflation, and that's a bad thing. So the Fed has to try to tamp down. And Steve, what do you what do you think? I mean, the the, the Fed has already started to raise rates kind of signaling they're going to be even more aggressive and, and, and also start shrinking their incredibly large balance sheet. Uh, what, what's the, uh, what, you know, what are the competing factors here? Well, I mean, I think as Tori pointed out, this, this time around is very different than the past times around. I, I think as I've discussed here before, 
the Fed has changed the way that it conducts monetary policy. Um, you know, prior to the financial crisis uh, back in 2008, 2009, uh, the Fed did not have the authority to pay interest on reserves, meaning the bank reserves that, that, that banks hold with the Federal Reserve. Um, and it had a, had a relatively modest balance sheet, meaning that all of the assets held by the Fed were less than a trillion dollars. Uh, but since the financial crisis and then following the, the outbreak of the COVID-19 pandemic, uh, the Fed has vastly expanded its balance sheet to, to almost, uh, almost nine, $9 trillion, um, which is just you know, phenomenal size compared to the trillion that, that existed you know, prior to, to 2008. And it, it, it has, has, has announced that it's going to begin to slowly roll off its balance sheet. Uh, but at the same time, in order to, to sort of maintain control of the balance sheet, the Fed has instituted a policy of paying interest on those reserves in order to, to keep uh, banks from lending the money out and causing you know, too much credit and potentially too much inflation. And so the Fed has two tools to work with, the interest on reserve policy and the balance sheet policy. And you know, nobody quite knows how those two are going to work together in an inflationary environment. And so you know, we really are in unprecedented territory. Now, it may be that these two tools working together in combination are just the, the, the magic that the Fed needs to shrink the balance sheet and control inflation and, and engineer a soft landing. But uh, alternatively, they're, they're doing something they've never really done before. Um, and so it, it's really hard to predict how the financial markets and how you know, businesses and consumers are going to perceive the changing environment and, and what sort of expectations of inflation you know, may get baked into the cake. I mean, you know, the Fed has built up an incredible reserve of goodwill and confidence over the last 30, 40 years by maintaining inflation at a, at a low and stable rate. Now that inflation has gotten out of control, the financial markets still think the Fed has their, you know, has a handle on, on the situation. And you can see that in terms of the interest rates. Uh, I mean, even you know, 10-year treasuries are still less than 3%. You know, inflation is 8% and treasuries are 3%, meaning people are earning a negative return. Well, obviously, if you thought inflation was going to persist, interest rates would continue to go up. They have not done that yet. And so, you know, the financial markets still seem to have a great deal of confidence in the ability of the Feds. And the question is whether the Fed deserves <laughs> deserves that confidence. Well, the uh, the thing is, is, in order to keep that reputation, they may have to slam the brakes pretty hard. And that's, I guess, why people are thinking that it could uh, result in a recession. Um, one, go, go ahead, Troy. I was going to bring in the, uh, the the difference in the debt, but uh, go ahead and and. No, I just there's just one one point. I mean, everybody uh, talks about inflation as a monetary phenomenon, and I I, I mean, think we think that's correct. There's a role that fiscal policy plays in it, though, as well. And I think one of the things that uh, a lot of the inflation watchers are are looking at is the fact that you know that the the federal government is expected to spend you know that the deficit's going to be a trillion dollars less uh, this year than it was last year. Um, so that's you know a trillion dollars less you know sloshing around in in the economy. 
Um, I think that's one thing that, that, that people are looking at, you know, do I think that's going to solve the inflation problem? No, but I think it's, it's, it's one thing that's, that's helping people sort of moderate their expectations about future inflation. Yeah. And uh, they talk about the supply chain issues resolving themselves as well. And, and, uh, things like that, you know, does it make a difference this time that we have such a, a huge debt? I mean, when, when Paul Volcker, uh, tamped down inflation in the late 70s um, by raising interest rates dramatically, and it did cause a recession. The, the debt as a percentage of the economy was r- relatively small. Uh, it's although I thought it was high at the time. <laughs> right. <laughs> but but I mean, but, but now it's now it's really, really huge. Does, does that make a difference in what policymakers can do? So, I mean, you're, you're correct in that in the Volcker era, you know, debt to GDP was the debt to GDP ratio was about 25 percent, you know, and right now it's over 100 percent. But when you look at net interest expense relative to GDP, they're about the same. Um, and when you take a look at uh, in inflation overall, you know, when, when, when Volcker really hit the brakes, inflation was running, you know, an excess of 14 percent. You know, we're at you know, almost half of that. At this point, so I think you know the Federal Reserve is on the case. They're jumping on the case a lot. I mean, everybody will agree that the Federal Reserve is late to the party, no doubt about it. But they're jumping on the case a lot earlier than they did in the, the, the 70s when when Vol- Volcker had this this problem with inflation. Um, but you're right, we're dealing with a, a debt to GDP ratio that's higher, um, but you know a net interest cost that that's about the same as as before. Um, now, one of the one of the things that fell out. Of, of the Volcker era is, uh, you know, Graham Rudman. Uh, there was a big, huge uh, uh, fiscal uh, uh, fiscal deal, you know, uh, uh, in Congress at the time, uh, you know, to help get budget deficits under control as part of tightening of, of monetary policy. So if, you know, by chance, one of the, the, offshoots of, of this experience with inflation, it leads to another, you know, budget reconciliation deal that helps get deficits under control. You know, that's maybe one silver lining to this, um, especially given the fact that debt to GDP is so high, you know, maybe the combination of the two, uh, you know, helps bring lawmakers to the table to help get our debt and deficits down to a more sustainable level. Well, that would be nice. I'm I'm not seeing it on the, uh, <laughs> I'm not seeing it in the forecast here, but, but, but you're right. I mean, we never know. I mean, you know, we've gone from uh, talk of, of transitory uh, inflation to, to kind of accepting that it's going to be around for a little bit longer. And the, the, the big question really is whether or not, I think you mentioned before, inflation expectations have, have settled in uh, or are settling in and that, that we might uh, be dealing with a longer term phenomenon. I'm beginning to see more Stories and and opinion columns by business people warning about a a long longer term inflation problem. Um, Steve, what's your take on that? Have we got a new anchor? <laughs> well, you know, it's in, it's interesting how the rhetoric has changed around this issue. You know, for a year we were hearing, oh, it's all transitory. It's all transitory. It's going to go away. And at the beginning of this year, they, they've developed a new phrase. They said, okay, well, it's no longer transitory. And they went a month or two, and they didn't quite yet have a new term, but they, they just in the last month or so, they've coined a new term. And they said, inflation has peaked. 
that we've reached peak inflation and, and you know, we've seen it's as high as it's going to go. And from here on out, it's going to be down, you know. And so, you know, if you if you, you know, do a do a quick search on the Internet and, and look at peak inflation, uh, that that phrase has really started in, into more common use in the last month or so. The real interesting question is whether or not it has actually peaked. <laughs> uh, you know, and, and I'm not predicting that it hasn't, but it's just interesting how, you know, again, the 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 optimistic spin as well, it's transitory, now it's peaked. And, you know, but I think the bottom line is even if it has peaked, we're still a long way back to the Fed's target of two percent. Mm-hmm. And, you know, the notion that we're gonna get there in, in the next year or even the next two years, I, I have my doubts. I, I think inflation higher then target inflation is is going to be around for for at least a couple of years. Mm-hmm. Well, part of it is, and we can close on this, but I mean, it's it's difficult for policymakers to really do anything. I mean, the Fed has to take the lead here. Uh, you're listening to Facing the Future. I'm your host, Bob Bixby, and I've been discussing the future of inflation and possibility of a recession with Concord Coalition Policy Director Tory Gorman and Chief Economist Steve Robinson. Thanks for listening. I'll be back next week with another edition of Facing the Future. 